Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your goodness to us. Lord, we're undeserving, but You're merciful, loving, kind, long-suffering. Lord, thank You that You do not deal with us according to our sins and our iniquities, which, as the psalmist said, have gone way over our head. There's nothing that we could render to You to make payment, to regain favor, to provide atonement. So Lord, it's, we just want to acknowledge that it's, it is simply by Your grace, because of Your love for us, that we are even able to have a relationship with You at all. And, and because of Your grace, because of what Christ has done in our behalf that we are even able to be here tonight and come before Your throne of grace in prayer. And because of Your grace that we have Your Word before us and that we're able to gather and study. Lord, we're thankful to You for all of these things. And we ask now that You bless the reading and the proclamation of Your Word. Grant clarity, grant accuracy, we pray. Grant understanding for all of us. And may it all work to bring glory and honor to Your name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So Jesus said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up? In three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Okay, I'm going to stop there, even though there's only a little bit left in the chapter here. Because um, I want to focus in on what is going on here, and 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 again, this is what we'll, we'll be trying to uh, highlight as we go through here. But it, John is picking signs and events, and and obviously all to uh, to um, to make a, a point, specific point. So as I said, we're going to see this recurring and reoccurring and reoccurring. But in the the account we read this morning, if we interpret it correctly. Um, then you've got 
you've got something, an old way that served a purpose, but a temporary purpose. You know, the ceremonialism of the law. It's not that it was bad. In fact, it was, it was good. I mean, it was God-given. It was given to the, the Israelites for a purpose. But now, um, its time is up. It, it, was, it was temporal. And it, it was intended to point to a, a greater reality, a superior reality, something better. All right? So the, uh, that's, and, and, I, and that does seem like a sound interpretation to me for one reason, um, because this theme keeps on going in, John, in John's Gospel. And, and in other places, it's like we're, where we're fixing to see here, it's, it's more obvious. Um, it's not so obvious, I, I will admit, in, in, the, uh, in the case of the water changing to wine, but it makes sense to me, and it, and it is more obvious in these other places. So you've got the, the old way of ceremonialism, or, or whatever the case is, it's going to be different things we'll be looking at, but with, in the case with the water and the wine, that was the idea there. Uh, the, the ritualistic customs replaced by the fulfillment. The wine in that case, but you know, representing the kingdom of God, representing faith through Jesus Christ. Now, it's changed a little bit here, but that theme is still the same. So here John says it's, it's the Passover of the Jews, and Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, and he walks into the temple, and this is the, the event that we all know of is Jesus cleansing the temple, driving out the money changers. Uh, and I want to say a couple things here in case you're kind of in case you've read this before and you're kind of scratching your head and wondering, wait a minute, I read this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Different account, but apparently the same event. And it happens at the end of Jesus' ministry. Right after the triumphant entry, when, you know, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, right before He's crucified, a week, a week less than a week before He's crucified, and, you know, he walks into the temple and cleanses the temple. And here you are in John, and you're reading what appears to be the same, the same event, and it is right up front. I mean, we've just seen his first sign, the beginning of his public ministry, rather than the end. And here he is walking into the temple and, and cleansing, uh, cleansing the temple. So, obviously, we're faced again with, with two possibilities. It could be that... These are the same event, and they're just, you know, given, uh, well, they are given by different perspectives, uh, from different perspectives by each writer, but it, it could be that the chronology is off um, just because of the themes of their Gospels. And so they, so they insert it in different places. I don't, I don't think that's the case, but that's possible. That's possible. The second possibility is he did it twice. And, and that's the one I lean more towards. In other words, he, he did it. In fact, that would, that would uh, again, seem reasonable. He did it at the very beginning of his ministry, and then he did it again at the very end of his ministry. All right, so that's the view that I lean towards, and I, that's the one I, th- I think to be correct. But you do have those, and in, 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 again, I don't think you can prove it one way or the other. But you do have those two possibilities. Either Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are talking about the same exact event, they've just put it in different places in their Gospels, or 
It happened twice. Once at the beginning of his ministry, once at the end of his ministry. Now some people have argued, well, if he did it at the beginning of his ministry and then he came back to do it again later, you know, surely the Jews would stop him. There's no way they would put up with that twice. It's amazing that they did it once. I mean, you, you know, you can tell that uh, there, there's something extraordinary going on with this man. It should have, that should have been obvious that they, that they allowed it even the first time. But some people will say, well, you know, surely they wouldn't have allowed it again the second time. But it's not like this was, you know, the next day or the next week. If he did it at the beginning of his ministry and again at the end of his ministry, we're talking about three years span in between, um, where approximately three years span in between, where he and he had been in, during that period in, in and out of Jerusalem and in and out of the temple, temple several times. So it's not like they would have been expecting it. It would have caught them off guard again. Uh, so, it, it seems to me that it happened twice, and this is the first time. You, um, in fact, I suggest you do that. Read the accounts for yourself, and, and you'll see some differences. A lot of similarities, yes, but also some differences uh, in the accounts of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and in John's account. So, I think, I think Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all talking about the same event at the end of his ministry where John is talking about a similar event at the beginning of his ministry. So, what does he do? He goes in the temple. Verse 14 says, He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. You've heard people say, um, you know, in, in reference to Christian characteristic, what should characterize us, meekness. You've heard people say, meek, not weak. This, this is a great example of the distinction. <laughs> Jesus was meek. He was always meek. He was never weak. And we, meekness does not equal weakness. He wasn't a pacifist. Um, and I think... Some some people want to say that he was and that all Christians should be. Uh, I don't know how somebody can read the book of Revelation, for example, and come away thinking that Jesus is a pacifist. Um, he he's he's very much a, a you know a warrior um, when he when he returns when when he returns in triumph. Um, and so here you see this is not a fit of anger. I saw it portrayed that way in a movie one time. It's one reason I don't watch. Movies about Jesus. I mean, I rarely, rarely watch a movie about Jesus. They just, they just get my blood pressure up. You know, I guess uh, they're they're aggravating, <laughs> very aggravating. But I watched one one time, and that's what they did. You know, he goes in the temple, and they they actually did the scene pretty good. He went in the temple and drove everybody out. But then he's practically repenting afterwards. You know, basically saying, "I lost my head." You know, and this and this is not the way to do things. You know, and, and so it's like he gets back on track. You know. Um, well, that's ridiculous. There, there's no sin here except on the part of um, those whom he's confronting. So he drives out um, the money changers. They're selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. These are people that would have been um, probably exchanging different currencies. Plus, you know, they're selling, um, they're selling the animals for sacrifice because some people travel too far to bring animals. And so they just bring money. And when they get to Jerusalem, they buy whatever animal they need for sacrifice. So 
the, the temple has become a place of commerce. You know, they, they got all these travelers coming in for Passover. They're selling them the Passover lambs. They're changing their money and they're profiting. It's not things that they're doing, uh, you know, on the on the above board and on the level. It's a money making machine. It kind of kind of sounds like a lot of what goes on in Christianity today. You know, where we 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 sell the gospel. We 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 put the gospel out for you know for money and so forth. Um, you could probably draw some parallels there. So Jesus drives them out of the temple, and why does he do that? How does he do that? First, he does it. He makes a whip of cords. He's serious about this. <laughs> See what I'm saying? He's not a pacifist. He's he's got a lot of passion here. In fact, they're going to go on to quote from. John's going to quote from Psalm 69, zeal for your house has eaten me up or consumed me. He's got compassion about God's house. Now this is the Old Testament temple, Solomon's temple, that this particular one was rebuilt by Herod, King Herod. Um, They were magnificent structures. But they were indeed, uh, under the Old Covenant, uh, the house of God. Uh, my kids know, and my wife knows, and probably anybody that's been around me very long knows that I don't like to refer to buildings as the house of God. This is why. Because that, that time, that era, that period is over. This, this was, this temple in Jerusalem was the house of God. What is the house of God today? It's us, right? <laughs> right. So it's like a, uh, you know, it's something I put on Facebook the other day. The church is not where we go, it's who we are. It's who we are. So, at this point, Old Covenant, this is the temple. So, so yes, at this point, Jesus is zealous for this place, this location, this building, because it is supposed to be a house of worship. So, everybody's, you know, they're in there selling, they're making money, turned it into a money-making business. Jesus comes in with a whip and drives them out. Verse 15, making a whip of cords, He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Isn't that fascinating that, that He got away with all that? And you, you go in a public place, it doesn't have to be a church or a temple, or go in a public place and try something like that. Well, you know, don't. I don't recommend that you do that. But, you know, what do you think would happen? But isn't it amazing that even the, the Jewish leadership didn't quite know what to do, so they're asking him things like, by, by what authority do you do this? <laughs> so they understand, obviously they understand that there's some credibility about this guy. And so they care, they confront him, but they confront him carefully. But Jesus overturns their tables, pours out the money, and verse 16 says, He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my Father's house. Notice how he says that. He doesn't just say, don't make this temple, don't make this house of God a house of trade. He says, don't make my Father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember, they remembered Psalm 69, um, 9, verse 9 here. 
zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus, in other words, is fulfilling a prophetic word from the psalm, Psalm 69, that he would be consumed. He would be consumed with zeal for the house of the Lord. Zealous for the house of the Lord. Now, he says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Other, the, the other accounts I was talking about earlier that apparently happened uh, late in his ministry, he says, uh, he quotes from, uh, or, or alludes to Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11, and he says, you know, uh, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer. My father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. But you've made it a den of thieves. So he's very zealous. Very zealous for the purity of God's house. Now, there's some application for us. And this, this is one reason um, that I get a little bit zealous myself about using that term, house of God or church, in reference to a building. Because God's zeal is not for a building you know, made with wood and brick and mortar and so forth. God's zeal is for the true church, the true house of God, which is us, the people. And the application is this, He is zealous for our purity. He is zealous that uh, we be sold out for Him and not given over to some form of compromise or idolatry or something of that sort. He wants our passion to be Him. We are. Now it's the church. Now it's the body of Christ. Now it's us, the true house of God, the true temple as God's people. Now now it is us who are to be a house of prayer for the nations. Alright? It's us that should not be compromised. But here, and we're going to see in a moment, he's, he's got another temple in view, not, not even the church here, so to speak. So he, he, his disciples, remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So they, they seem to be understanding at this point um, as, they're, as they're watching this play out that he's filling, fulfilling another uh, prophecy. So, they, so it's further confirmation, in other words, that he is indeed the Messiah. So verse 18, the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Now they, they want to know where he gets the authority to do this, and they want him to... Uh, it's, it's, like, it's kind of like asking a doctor for their credentials or, or a lawyer or a police officer or something. Like, show us what rights you have to do this. Now if you're going to arrest me, you need to show me a badge or something, Right? If you're going to do surgery on me, um, I want to, you know, I want to know you got a diploma from someplace reputable, some, something really uh, that, that proves your skill, your your authority. If you're going to come in here and act like you own the temple, then you need to show us a sign that that would make it clear to us 
By what authority do you do these things? So they say, what sign do you show us? Now this is interesting. I, I said this morning, oftentimes Jesus will answer in a way, sometimes it seems like He doesn't even talk about, He's not even talking about the same thing. Other times it seems like He just kind of went off in a different direction. But in reality, He's giving, he's giving an answer to the question. So they say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And here's Jesus' reply in verse 19. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Okay, now if you put yourself in their shoes, and here he is driving money changers out, overturning tables, and you, and you, you, you come up to him and say, you know, show us a sign. In other words, we're questioning your authority. Why are you doing these things? Why are you, quote, cleansing the temple? And he responds, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. It doesn't sound like that answer goes with their question, does it? It doesn't sound like it answers their question. They didn't ask, how long would it, how long would it take you to rebuild the temple? Could you rebuild the temple if we destroy it? <laughs> and they, they're asking for a sign to prove his authority. Well, there's a couple things going on here. Number one, he's referring to his own body, his self, as the temple. That's, that's what he means when he says destroy this temple. He's not talking about the building that he, is, that he has just um, purged, essentially. He's talking about himself, verse 21. He was speaking about the temple of his body. In other words, he was saying, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it. But he was talking about his body. Destroy my body and I will raise it up. So here we've got another scenario where, where Jesus is pitting the reality, a superior reality, over against something that is just supposed to point to that reality. And it's just like the, the water to wine. Their whole focus is on the old way, the temporary, the ceremonialism, which includes the, the temple worship. So when they think about meeting God, or when they think about worshiping God, or when they think about communion with God, it's all about the temple, meaning the building. The building that Jesus is running people out of. And what Jesus is doing is saying, oh, there's, there's a temple superior to this one. There's a temple superior to this one. And if you destroy this temple, the real temple, the superior temple, the temple of His body, He says, I'll raise it up in three days. So, He's, he's in His reply and making it known that He is greater than the building that they revere so highly, the building that He, is, that he Himself is, is zealous to, uh, to purify. Now, if He understands that the building itself is, is, is just you know, stone and mortar and so forth, and, and that it cannot literally house God, then why is He zealous for the purity of it? 
Well, I think a couple of reasons. For one thing, right here, as we're reading John 2, they're still under the old dispensation. There's, about, there's a transition beginning, but this is still Old Testament times. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you're reading Old Testament. Until you get to the cross and the resurrection. Up until then, the Jews are... I mean, the law is fully in effect in every sense that it is from Genesis to Malachi. So you're reading Old Testament. So the temple is the house of God. That is Solomon's temple or here Herod's temple. It is the house of God. It is the place where the sacrifice is to be done. But there's another thing. It is supposed to, again, it is supposed to point to the, to the real temple. In other words, it just signifies a greater reality. Jesus Christ Himself. Or you, in, 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 as I mentioned earlier, you could even say it, uh, it points to the church, the body of Christ here on earth. So it should be pure as that which it signifies is pure, as that which it points to is pure. Again, application for us, right? The church as the body of Christ here on earth, as Christ's presence, so to speak, in the earth. We, we should reflect His purity, reflect His character, reflect His glory. And so even the Old Testament temple building, Jesus was zealous for the purity of it. Now, how much more, how much more do you think He's concerned with our purity? The church of the living God. So, He's talking about His own body. He says, destroy this temple and in three days... I will raise it. Now, I said there's a couple of things going on. First, I just mentioned he's showing himself to be the superior one, just like the wine showed the superiority of the kingdom over against the ritualism of the Old Covenant. Now he's showing himself to be superior to the Old Testament temple. And so as... The true temple, does he not have authority to cleanse the type? And I said a while ago, you can imagine them thinking, you know, he's coming in here like he owns the place. <laughs> he does own the place, yeah. It's his temple in reality. And so he is answering their question. Destroy this temple. In other words, he's saying, I'm, I'm the true temple. This building is just a type of me. It is support, supposed to point you to me. supposed to make you think of me. And so certainly, as the true temple, he has authority to do what he just did in purging the type, the Old Testament temple. And notice, he also refers to his <clears throat> resurrection and his power uh, to raise himself. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, I'm, you know, I'm sure they're thinking, you know, he's, you know, he's loony, he's lost it, he doesn't know, you know, he's not answering our question and he's crazy. But of course, what he's describing here is exactly what's going to happen. They're going to seek to destroy his body. 
put him to death. They're going to destroy, in that sense, by putting him to death, they're going to destroy the true temple of God. And in only three days, he will raise it again. And we know from Romans that in doing that, rising again from the dead, he is declared to be the Son of God with power, right? So that's that's the sign. They say, show us a sign. Show us a sign. What sign do you show us for doing these things? And he's basically saying the resurrection. The resurrection. You destroy this temple and I'm going to raise it back up again. That's, that's, that's your sign. Uh, the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he, now this is John speaking, the Apostle John writing, but he, that is Jesus, was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore He was raised from the dead, His disciples remember. Now, notice this, because we'll be watching this as we go too. It, it does, it, it all, everything doesn't come together at once. This is another thing that fascinates me about God's ways. Redemptive history. Where does it, where does it start? Well, it starts before the foundation of the world, actually. But if you get into... Um, what. Where it plays out in history, well, Adam and Eve sin, and then God promises a seed that will crush the head of the serpent. So already He's speaking in Genesis 3 about redemption. So there's, there's a little bit, you know, like kids were singing a while ago, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Well, well God gives light you know, of revelation. And there's just, a, there's just like a, in Genesis 3, like a little flicker of light God says there's going to be enmity between your seed and, and the seed of the serpent. He tells Adam and Eve. But the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. That's, that's a prophecy concerning Jesus, the coming of the Messiah. And then that just unfolds. That Truth just unfolds throughout the Old Testament. You get a little more light, a little more light, a little more light, a little more light. All through redemptive history, God just keeps piecing it together, giving us a little more and a little more and a little more. And then it's like the brightness of the noonday sun breaking through the clouds when you get to the New Testament and you get to the Gospels. All of a sudden... The light just burst forth and you've got Jesus on the scene. But they don't understand all this, so they're, they're gonna, we're going to see as we go through the Gospels, they get it piece by piece. And I think that's exactly what John was saying back up in verse uh, 11. Um, his, that's what he was alluding to. His disciples believe. It's not that, okay, now at that point, they got it all together. They've got it all figured out. No, but they believed what they just saw. And they did see, when He changed the water to wine, they did see a glimpse of the glory of God in that. I mean, they... they some of the servants... I mean, we don't know, but some of the servants might have thought He was a magician or something. But the disciples believed. The light that He gave, they embraced. And, and he, now He gives more. 
And it just little by little as you walk through the Gospels, and they some fall away, but the twelve remain, and some others remain as well. They keep on believing. So, they didn't get it all at once. In fact, this particular thing they didn't understand until after the resurrection. What John says in verse 21. He was speaking about the temple of His body, um, in verse 22 rather. When therefore He was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that He said this. Now think about it. The Apostle John that's writing this, he was an eyewitness more than likely because he's probably the, the disciple back in chapter uh, 1 that is not, uh, not mentioned when you, he says there were two disciples that heard John say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they followed him. And we know that one of them was Andrew. He doesn't tell, them, tell us who the other one was. It was probably John. So he's probably an eyewitness here. So he's speaking from first-hand account. We heard these things, but we didn't understand until Jesus was actually raised from the dead. And then we remembered that he said this. And what does he say here? Once they remembered, they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, just a quick reminder before we dismiss. We'll go back to this key verse here. Chapter 20, verse 31. Verse 30 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. Verse 31, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Chapter 2, verse 22 says, They believed the Scripture and the Word that Jesus had spoken. I think John, speaking of himself and of the other disciples there, and that's what he wants his readers to do. Believe and experience the life. Look, in a nutshell, with, with this contrast that Jesus makes with himself and the Old Testament temple, Herod's temple, in a nutshell, he's saying this. And, and, and again, there's going to be more, more to support this as we go along, especially in chapter 4. But he's, but he's essentially saying this. You have understood this to be the place where you meet God. And rightfully so, to some extent. God did manifest His presence in a unique way in the Old Testament tabernacle and in the Old Testament temple. He did command that the sacrifices be, be, uh, be performed in the, in the temple. But Jesus is saying, but now, the meeting place with God is me. It's not a building. It's not a particular location, like a particular city or a particular mountain. It's me. And you don't have to do incantations, and you don't have to do ceremonial cleansing. You have to come to God through faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Period. 
He's the wine that is superior to the water. He's the true temple that is superior to the temple of Herod. And there's going to be much more as, as we go through here. <laughs> All right, would you stand and we'll pray and dismiss.